0: As the video is given to us by uh, David, Bill Pancock, and uh, it's just good to just see a short video just to get us started this morning. Would you stand with me as we uh, read the book of Romans chapter 1, 1 through 16. Uh, We'll just read that together. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nation including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God I will I may know that last succeed to coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually encourage by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among all the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, all who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's just finish verse 17. For it is in the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven. Father, we glorify you as our creator, God, who ultimately we are accountable to. God, we are sinners in desperate need of your rescue. God, by your grace and your mercy, you sent us the King of heaven, Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life, who died for the sins that we should have died and rose from the grave. And God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, the convicting power of your Spirit to remind us of the kindness of our Savior and God. That led us all to repentance. So Father help us Lord to exalt you. To praise your name. And one day God. We look forward to the day that every knee should bow. That every tongue should confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. For the glory of God the Father. In Jesus name. Amen. We are in the Paul's last I am statements of the book of Romans chapter 1. I was doing the sermon card for the summer starting in May when uh, after Mother's Day. uh, And you know, by the end of May, we'll be done with chapter 1 of Romans. (laughs) And then uh, then I look more over the year, what the year will look like. And it will look like possibly by the grace of God, we'll get to chapter 4. right. So but take our time. And it's beautiful because chapter one to chapter two, chapter three and chapter four really highlights for us the gospel. And there's nothing better than talking about the good news of the gospel. That's why it's called the gospel, (laughs) because it means good news. (laughs) Right. But chapter two, three and four could be a little bit rough, but, you know, we'll see the grace of God in that let me begin by, with a general question. What makes a person feel ashamed? And I want you to consider these examples. First, suppose a boy brags to his friends that he can outrun the skinny new kid at school. So the kids set up a race around the block. Both boys look and see where all the obstacles are and, and the turns. Then they line up. The neighborhood kids are all out watching and someone says, ready, set, go. How many guys have done this? Okay. <laughs> okay. And then And then the skinny new guy finishes 40 to 50 yards ahead of the arrogant guy. When that happens, it is very likely that the arrogant feels ashamed. He feels that he has made a fool of himself. Second, suppose someone you don't like at school has a dad who is in jail. You make fun of him and for this you call him names and point out to others that his dad is a crook. You boast that your dad is a successful financial officer. Then one day on your way home, you heard a terrible news that your dad has been arrested and charged with embezzlement. The next day, you don't even want to go to school because you are so ashamed, both of your father and of yourself. Third, suppose you put a lot of stock in how you look and how you dress, having your hair just the way it is, Um, your clothes in, in perfect taste. You're invited to a party and you check with the people whom you think are reliable advisors about what to wear, how to look. But when you got there, then you realize that you're totally wrong in the way you were dressed. You are so embarrassed that you just want to go home. Lastly, suppose you have a, a part in a play, a small one perhaps, and you're nervous and acting as that acting's not your thing. And the play begins. Your heart is pounding out of your chest. And, and the audience is large. And, and everyone is doing beautifully and setting a high standard. And, and your moment's about to come. And, and at that exact moment, you freeze. And, and you try to say the two lines. And everybody's looking at you. And you just can't do it. Someone whispers to you your lines to no avail. And you just run off the stage, run off to another planet. And we all know what it is to be embarrassed or to be ashamed, don't we? I mean, I've been always, I've been embarrassed in your life and just feel a little bit ashamed. All right, all of us have have gone through that. I was asking God this week, um, God, why, (laughs) I don't understand, because uh, Romans 1, 14, 15, 16 could be knocked out in really one sermon. Why did it take me three weeks to go through 14, 15, and 16? Finally I got the answer is because the Lord is telling me um, because you thought you were preaching to the church, but you actually need to preach to yourself. So I realized that this passage is really about me and it's for me. I realized that I wasn't so I mean, I kind of forgot that I am under contract, that I'm under obligation to preach the gospel. I'm under obligation to preach the pastor. I know uh, what I'm under obligation to do. That's very clear with me. But somewhat sense that I don't feel that weight that I'm under contract to preach the gospel. And then I realized, okay... Okay I realize I am under obligation then I know I'm eager to share the gospel with someone I know how eager I am and yet there's been years and months have passed by that that I don't go look for someone to share the gospel with It really shows how eager I am doesn't it And then this week I said God I'm definitely not ashamed of your gospel that's definitely not me. And then I realized what the word ashamed means. Cost me to just repent. Cost me to ask for forgiveness. Cost me to say, God, would you create something <laughs> where I've been reminded all the time of my obligation and I'm reminded all the time that I should not be ashamed of the gospel and that there's this ignorance in my heart to tell people the good news of the gospel. And then it came verse 16. As a way of review, uh, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at Paul's I am statement. We're in the last one today. And his attitude towards the gospel. And then in verse 14 tells us how he was under the contract to preach the gospel. He was in debt to God for saving him. Last week, he showed us how eager he was to pay off his debt, his gratefulness to Christ who died for the forgiveness of his sins. Then number three comes along. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Really, this is what it means in the, the Greek text is, I am passionate. That's our third point. God says, I am under obligation, Paul said. Then I am excited. And thirdly, he said, I am passionate. That's the last I am statement. He does not say here that I will not be ashamed as if one day he will finally be this. Or is he saying, I'm hoping to be not ashamed? or or one day I will arrive, he uses the presence of the word. He says, I am not ashamed. I am passionate about the gospel. This was the constant state of his mind. His habitual lifestyle showed how passionate he was about the gospel. Just look at the map. This is someone who was passionate about the gospel. This is someone who knew his obligation. This is someone who was eager that he will go through all these places. Why? Because he was passionate about it. He was proud of the gospel because it is good news, not bad news. Isn't it easy to be proud when you're saying it's good news? Isn't it harder when it's bad news? Paul puts this statement in the negative by using a rare figure of speech relating the word ashamed and will not. Both of which are negative, but in context, it means the total opposite of being ashamed. The reason why he was eager to preach the gospel is because he knows what the gospel can do. It changes lives. The gospel not only has the supernatural power to free us from sin, or from the bondage of sin, but it also has the power to change our lives. You see, it, it, it does not matter how sinful a person is, or what kind of lifestyle they have fallen into, it does not matter. The gospel can change anyone. And you have to believe that. What, what Paul is really saying is, I'm not embarrassed to be associated or reluctant to proclaim it. Because of fear of humiliation. All of us have this fear of being humiliated, don't we? Isn't this one of your greatest fears? Being humiliated and embarrassed and being shamed? Not only Paul is not ashamed, but he's actually proud to be associated with Christ and his gospel. He counted it as an honor to be connected to Jesus. So my question is, even before we could even go forward, is I need you to ask, answer this question to yourself. Are you proud to be connected with Jesus? Are you proud to be connected with Him? Are you proud about His message? Because the opposite of that is you're embarrassed about Him and you're embarrassed about the gospel. Are you proud of it? Do you show it off? Do you feel it's an honor? It's real honor to be connected with Christ. You feel that? You feel like you're, it's an honor? You feel proud about it? Sadly, you know, sometimes we're proud about the sports teams that we follow. Right? And we saw them by the Lakers. Now we could be proud of them. Right? But think about all the things that we are proud of. We're proud of our kids and we're proud of our house, proud of our car. We're proud of a lot of things. But my question for you is, are you proud about Christ and His gospel? If that is what it means to be ashamed, simply the opposite means that you shy away from identifying yourself with Christ and His message. You worry what it will mean to be tied to Jesus, to be connected with Jesus Christ. This worry is based on the fear of embarrassment, of course, and fear of humiliation, but this is what we really call, what we call self-preservation. If, if you watch enough television at all, you probably notice that nearly every set of commercials includes a car. Doesn't it? You see a car all the time, right? Car commercials tend to be predictable. They emphasize style, how the car makes you feel or how others feel when you see you driving it. Speed, zero to 60 in something, something seconds and, and safely and safety, anti-lock brakes, self-impact airbags, backup cameras, all of that. Not only are they predictable in emphasis, but they also tend to stereotype certain life stages. For example, those with children are shown in minivans with also safety features. I, I, I know friends who said, I will never buy a minivan. And then I see them driving a minivan. Not only do you see them, see them driving a minivan, but they're proud of having a minivan. One of the pastors said to me, hey, watch this, watch this. So he goes underneath the truck, the, the back of the van, and he just puts his foot up and he goes up. And I'm like, woohoo. And he's so excited about it. Because he says he doesn't have to lift up and put the stroller in. So proud about it. Right? And then we can, and then we know that uh, we can understand this because safety is a good thing. Anti-lock brakes, the side impact airbags are good things. Hand sanitizers, tying one shoelace, they're all good things. Walking, not running and getting flu shots are all good things. They all arise from our desire for safety. And behind the desire for safety lies the desire for self-preservation, which is also a good thing. In fact, um, when men and women of the military act heroically, despite a certain danger of the, for themse- to themselves, we are not saying that they didn't care about their own lives. Of course, they care about their lives. But what we do celebrate is that they value something more than self-preservation. We celebrate that they put something ahead of their own safety. This is the great issue. The problem is not safety or, or self-preservation. It's when self-preservation becomes an ultimate thing. When it becomes a God. What happens, when this happens, bad things happen. It happened to the leader of the disciples, Peter, on Good Friday. And that can happen to us. First, let's start by giving Peter some credit. He always gets bad credit. Right? But think about this. When Jesus went to the cross, or going to the cross, Peter's the one who followed further than any of the other disciples. He followed Jesus late into Thursday night and to Friday morning, where he found himself in the courtyard just outside of the very room where the religious fanatics handed down their verdict. It's here, however, that Peter exchanged true discipleship with forsake discipleship. We're told one of the servant's girls saw him warming himself by fire and asked if he had been with Jesus. Peter denied by saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Then a rooster crow, which should have been a wake-up call. Instead, he hit the snooze button. When asked again, he denies it. When the question came the third time, Peter won't even say Jesus' name. He only says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. His desire for self preservation became godlike, that demanded absolute allegiance. Then he heard the rooster crow again. Then he wept. All of us will admit that, that we have all been ashamed of the gospel at one time or another. But was Paul tempted to be ashamed as we are? Probably. But we know that his prodigy, Timothy, was in 2 Timothy 1 8 when he says, don't be timid. Don't be fearful. You have the power of love and a sound mind. Maybe you know the feeling of Peter, how Peter felt. The feeling of shame that comes from letting down your Lord. Maybe you felt it after the outsider to Christianity asked you a difficult question. Something about that question sets you off on an, an eternal alarm in your system. This isn't safe for my reputation. My reputation is on the line. So you wavered. You answered the question, but only by knocking the rough edges of Christianity to make it seem more palatable, acceptable. They might ask you, hey, uh, do Christians believe in repentance? And you say, "Ah, you know, that's for later. Actually, it's not later. You actually cannot get saved without repentance. Impossible to, to come to Christ without repentance without turning from sin into Christ? Impossible. Or perhaps one day a a co-worker says to you, I saw you in the break room reading your Bible. What's that about? Then you said, "Oh, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I do not know this book of which you speak. See, our strong desire for self-preservation always itself to be a problem, not only when confronted by those outside of Christianity. Perhaps there have been times where you have really struggling with something and you knew the right thing to do was was to ask others for help. Say, your life group or, or one of your elders in the church, but you also knew to ask for help meant risking your reputation. So you say, no, I'm a tough guy. I'm a tough Christian. I don't need anybody. I don't need to have Anybody tell me I am weak. So you bear your own struggle and you suffer alone. And then you complain, no one helped me. You know why no one helped you? Because no one knew. Our struggle for safety and our fear of losing our reputation is one of the reasons why people have such a difficult time making friends. Many of my brother pastors would have loved to drop the charade that they have all got it together. But, but don't because they're worried their job might be on the line. Why do all these foolish things, self-provision, and, and Peter wept? And so should we. I was talking to a brother pastor of mine this week and he said, man, there's just one day, I just want to come to the pulpit and tell them I'm weak. But I'm so scared that they'll fire me. And there's moments that I'd ask them, why do you fear such a thing? Because if they fire me, I I, I won't be able to support my family. So I'm I'm self-preserving because I don't want anybody to think I'm weak. I don't want anybody to think I'm struggling. I don't want anybody to think I'm fearful. I'm worried about my reputation. And I'm going to tell you now, just be honest with you, I don't have it all together. I just don't. I see the very pride in my own life. I, I see the very arrogance in my own life. And I don't have it all together. And I praise God for many of you here who, especially my wife, who I could just be myself. Who I could say I'm struggling who I could say, you know what, it's been a rough week. And I said, man, but you're a spiritual guy. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you could have rough times too. I'm not worried about my reputation anymore because there's nothing to really defend. I am who I am. It's because of the grace of God. <laughs> That's the only reason why I am who, why, what I do is because of the grace of God. So if the gospel story ended with Jesus on trial and Peter weeping, it would have been much of the gospel, right? Why aren't you glad that the gospel didn't end there? Right? Jesus lost his life laying aside safety and self-preservation for something greater. He rose again on the third day, and when he did, he went looking for who? Who do you look for? Who do you look for? He He died on Friday, resurrected on Sunday, and then who did he look for? He looked for Peter, the one who denied him three times. That's what he looked for. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? That when we are down, when we are downcast, when we're ashamed, and, and when we just fall, and we have this Christ who goes after you and me. Isn't that awesome? But imagine this, at the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21, Peter must have wrestled with whether this would be a fearful or a wonderful encounter. And the answer depends on what kind of a savior you have, doesn't it? Is Jesus coming for him the way a police officer might to catch a criminal, lights on, sirens blaring, Or is Jesus coming in an ambulance to restore his friend? The lights might flash and the sirens might blare, but Jesus rides in an ambulance to meet Peter. And if you are a Christian, no matter how badly you've sinned, the risen Lord will do the same for you. Matthew 16, 24 to 25 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Every one of us has a natural fondness to avoid suffering and pain. True? Do you all have a natural fondness to avoid suffering and pain? Do you? How many of you guys here would say, dude, I just love pain? <laughs> How many of you guys would just say, ah, oh, you know, I love suffering? You know, Paul prayed this wonderful prayer in Philippians 3.10. You know what he prayed? You guys remember what he prayed in Philippians 3? God, that I may have partnership with you in the fellowship of your suffering. Who prays that prayer? <laughs> Imagine praying that! I have never prayed that prayer, by the way. So I've been really unbiblical in many ways. But think about it. I just can't find myself to pray. God, let me partner with you in the fellowship of your suffering. (laughs) What? But you know, when you finish that verse, Paul says, Because I know if I do, then I understand you. Then I'll be conformed to your image. That's why he wanted it. There's a, and by the way, let me just, please don't get me wrong. Your natural fondness to avoid suffering and pain is not necessarily wrong. Clear? Everybody clear with that? Okay. Because there's a drive within all of us to preserve our lives and to extend them. Self-prohibition, it is said, is the first law of the universe. So we desire to ensure that we do not suffer any pain. And on the other hand, Jesus seems to be counseling us here in Matthew 16, that somehow this drive for self-satisfaction, this drive for self-preservation, for comfort, must be pushed from the front front of our lives and into a secondary place. It cannot be a God. That's why Jesus said, for whoever lose would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, before I give you reasons why you and I should be passionate about the gospel, uh, let me share with you first four reasons why Christians feel ashamed of the gospel or not so passionate about the gospel. Number one, the gospel tells us we're spiritual failures. Mark Mark 2.17 He says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. First, Jesus didn't come for those who think they are well. He came for those who knows that they're spiritually sick. He didn't come to coach people with spiritual potential to become greater success. He came for people who had no spiritual potential at all. He came for spiritual failures. He came for failures like me. The only way to be saved is through a free gift of grace. And this is good news, but it's an offensive news. Because no one wants to be called a failure. And no one wants to be called a spiritual failure. How many of you guys have ever been proud to say, You know what? I'm a spiritual failure. When's the last time you told that to someone? Hey, I'm a spiritual failure. Is that hard to admit? But when you see the core of the gospel, do you and I have to admit that we're spiritual failures to be saved? Must there be admission of sin in our lives? Must be an admission that I'm a spiritual failure to be saved? There must be. Or you wouldn't need a savior. Correct? But how often do we preach this to ourselves? How often do we preach to ourselves that we're spiritual failures? But you said, I've been saved already, so I'm no longer a spiritual failure. Yes, you're not. But sometimes it's just good to be reminded that spiritual failure so we know where we come from, so we don't forget how, where God saved us from. And then in turn, we'll have compassion on those who are still in their spiritual failure. Right? So it's good to be reminded of the gospel. Number two, the gospel tells us that we're wicked to the core. This is hard for some people. (laughs) Because some people believe that I'm not as bad as the other person. (laughs) How many of you have said that when you look at yourself? How many of you have ever said, hey, you're sinful. And then the first thought that came to your mind is this. But I know someone who is worse. I know someone who's more sinful. Can I just ask you, how does that feel for you? Does that make you feel good? Does it make you feel good that you found somebody more sinful than you are? Right? And then you say to that person, Dude, I'm so glad that I'm not as sinful as you. I'm so glad that I found more, someone more prideful than I am. <laughs> but in reality, we are really, the gospel tells us, the gospel, not me, the Bible, the gospel tells us that I'm wicked to the core. Amen. Right. I think it's okay to admit that. Here, if you don't believe, Jeremiah 17, 9, 10. It says here, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The gospel does not just say we're all made of mistakes. Is that's not say we could do a lot better. It levels the playing field, doesn't it? Doesn't the gospel level the playing field? Doesn't it level the playing field? Right? It does, right? And by by saying that, apart from God, we're utterly wicked. Our capacity, our human capacity to deceive ourselves and to function in rebellion against God is endless. We don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. In fact, that only the death of Jesus could save us. That was the only thing that could save you and I. I have a I have a PhD in deceiving myself. How many guys here have one of those? How many guys here have a PhD in deceiving myself? You guys have that? Maybe? Are you really as bad? And then you come to your your spouse and say, Hey, am I really as bad? No, you're not, honey. You're not. You're not as bad as you think you are. (laughs) And can I just tell you that you are? And then your spouse just lied to you, right? And and how you say, oh, how could she lie? Because the Bible says you're deceitfully, deceitfully wicked above all things. But when we realize this, this is the only time you will really see the beauty of the gospel. Tim Keller said this, this offense, the popular belief that in the innate goodness of humanity, Or the belief that we just need to get in touch with our inner beauty. Inner beauty. Wow. Number three, the gospel tells us that many good people go to hell. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The leading religious leaders view of our society assume more often that it is stated is that good, sincere people will be okay in the end because God grades on a curve. Can I just tell you now? God does not grade in a, in a, in a, in a curve. <laughs> he does not grade on a curve. You can't say in heaven when He asks you, why would I let you into my heaven? You can't say this. I almost believe. Can you say that? Will will that be good enough? Oh, I almost repented. Oh, I almost really want to turn away from my sin. I almost did that. Well, you think that will pass? You think God will just, in his righteousness and holiness, just said, you could come because your intent was so good. No. Many tend to think that good intention will be good enough for God. And I'm telling you, it's not. Good and moral people are not guaranteed heaven for the simple reason that none of us are deep down are actually good and moral. Romans 3 will tell you that. He tells us no one is good, no not one. It's nice to be nice. But Jesus didn't come to bring nice people to heaven. He came to save sinners from hell. God is the only one. Who can provide salvation? If you are going to receive it, it must be on his terms. Tim Keller said, the gospel is an is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. By the way, ask me after service what that means, okay? I, I, it took me a while to get it to. <sighs> Number four, the gospel tells us that suffering is normal, not exceptional. First Peter four sixteen, um, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him be not ashamed, but let him, be, let him glorify God in in the name in that name. The gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus serving and suffering. And, and we are his followers should expect the same in following him in Christianity. Christianity is not a religion that demands that its followers seek suffering. But the way of Christ is the way of service. And Jesus himself promised that those who hated him would hate his followers. John 16:33. Could you open the Bible there, please? John 16:33. And and those people sometimes that in regards to the gospel, they tell us that suffering is normal, not exceptional. Uh, this is sometimes the cost for us uh, when we be passionate about the gospel. Is in 16:33, he says this. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world. You will have tribulation. And I'm, I'm so glad that Jesus didn't stop there. Then he continued to say this But take heart, I have overcome the world. Isn't that awesome. <laughs> if our lives are filled with prosperity and ease, it's really worth asking if we're actually following the suffering Savior. Because I don't know anyone who is passionate about the gospel who does not suffer persecution. I don't know anyone. If you're so passionate about it, one thing that we know for sure is one, you'll be ridiculed for your faith. They will humiliate you, they will embarrass you. Why? Because the gospel is offensive. But before we just talk about this for a moment, would you turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 real quick? Matthew 5. And, and I think I just want to end with a blessing in regards to suffering. In Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus in the Beatitudes says this uh, 10, 11, and 12. Um, Jesus says, Blessed are those who, persecu- who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the kingdom of heaven. That's a promise. Not only the, Jesus calls you blessed, but he calls you what? He gives you the, the rewards of there is the kingdom of heaven. And then again, he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then I love what he says in verse 12 here. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is, heaven, is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Can I ask you something? Being passionate with Jesus Christ is not a waste. It will never be a waste. Being passionate for the gospel brings great rewards. How many guys are glad that this is not for nothing? Isn't it awesome that this is not for nothing? This is for a lot of something. I had a not a dream, I would say, but this morning I woke up this morning early, and, uh, and my my wife, kind of you know those curly things that we put in your hair, right? So my wife like slept with that thing, right? So during the time it fell, right? So when I turned, there's four of them that I just turned to, and I'm like, I went this way, and then, oh, what are these little? Plastic things! And it hurts. It just hurts. And then I said, well, what's this? Oh, it's to divide us. <laughs> I got it. Okay, divide for sure. So so I'm looking at I'm looking, this. What's my point? Here's my point. <laughs> It's still my point. <laughs> <laughs> my, my point is this. like, In this world, we will suffer. We just are. But the award is so great. But when I woke up this morning from that, <laughs> I felt like the Lord just said, Alan, be passionate about the gospel. Show it to your people. Don't tell your people. Show it to your people. Don't be a hypocritical pastor. Show them that you are obligated. Show them that you're under contract. Show them that you're eager. Show them that you're not ashamed. Show them that you are passionate about it. Just don't tell them. Live it. Because one day I want to hear Christ say to me, thou good and faithful servant, I want the Lord to tell me you were not ashamed of me. I want the Lord, I want to hear from the Lord, you were passionate about me. I want to say from the Lord, you were never ashamed of me. You were proud to be connected with me. But the alternative of that would be what? What if you would hear him say to you? You played it safe. You were a secret thing. And you made the gospel secret. And the Bible says, there's no rewards for you in that. It's only great as your reward to those who are willing to be persecuted for their faith. So Jesus says. Uh, Tim looked over the back, so it's a good signal for me to jump to the next one. (laughs) You see, the gospel is offensive, but we should not be ashamed. There are plenty of reasons for contemporary people to be offended by the gospel. But to be not ashamed means to recognize its unpopular features, but you are to preach it faithfully anyways. Paul knew that the gospel message would offend everyone, but he wasn't ashamed of it because he knew it alone contains the power of new life. Before I, I give you the five reasons to be passionate about the gospel, would you turn your Bible with me to first Corinthians nine sixteen? First Corinthians nine sixteen. First Corinthians nine sixteen. First Corinthians 9, 16. This is Paul's mindset. He says, "For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. But woe to me if, it, if I do not preach the gospel. See, the, the gospel gives us no grounds for boasting. It doesn't. It actually does the opposite. It humbles us. Let me give you five reasons to be passionate with gospel in 10 minutes. <sighs> so, Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 5 is probably one of the most passionate um, friendship I've ever seen in the Bible. Okay? You just have to read that for yourself. You just have to just look it over. So, offensive or not, Paul became eager to get the message to everyone and the question for me and the question for you this morning is are you eager to get the message of the gospel to everyone you see the opposite of a shame gospel is not proud is actually is to be passionate to spread the gospel now let me suggest some reasons why we should all be passionate about the gospel number one because of its meaning because of its meaning luke chapter 2 verse 10 and the angel said to them fear not for behold i bring you good news of great joy that would that will be for all people the first reason why we should be passionate about the gospel is the meaning of the word gospel it means good news say good news good news. and no no logical person should be ashamed of such a wonderful news this is not like a doctor who must tell a patient that tests have come out badly and that, that he or she does not have long to live. But the gospel is not like this. It's actually the opposite. Instead of being bad news, it's the greatest news. And the greatest news is this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Isn't that great news? Isn't this the best news possible that you have become rich in Christ? The good news of the gospel produces joy in our lives. You might be heading into this Easter season with a heavy load of your, on your shoulders. This might be your first Easter without a dearly loved one, a child, or a close friend. The paradoxical truth of the gospel is that it does not take away our sorrow and sadness, but it gives us a deep abiding joy in the midst of suffering. Joy is not found in circumstances or situation, but in our Savior Christ the Lord. If you are in Christ, you can have great joy because He has taken care of the biggest problem you will ever face, your sin that separated you from God. God is our Creator and is holy and we have sinned against Him. But the one of His great love is He sent His Son to redeem His enemies... God the Father in Christ has taken those who were His enemies and made them dearly loved children. He died the death we deserve and was raised from the dead for our justification. That is the gospel. Greatest news ever. There's no better news. There's nothing that could be a source of greater joy for you and for me than the gospel. How can you keep this truth in this mind in this Easter season and throughout the year? Jerry Bridges said, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We can do this by writing it out daily, praying through the gospel or reading a passage about the gospel. Romans 3 is a good one. Just write it. No matter how you apply it, the goal is to keep the good news of the gospel in your mind continually. Uh, One of the best books I have been given, uh, it's hard to give me books, by the way. It's very hard. So when somebody gives me a book, you know, there's always a message behind it sometimes. And, but it's hard because sometimes I just pick up books all the time. But this book is called The Gospel Primer. It's called The Gospel Primer. You know what this says to me every day? <laughs> it's, it's, it's daily. It's like day seven, day eight, and that. And you know, I, every morning I open to this and, because this allows me to preach the gospel to myself. And let me tell you what it preached to me. Outside of heaven, the power of God in this highest density is found inside the gospel. This must be so for the Bible twice described the gospel as the power of God. Nothing else in all scriptures ever described in this way, except for the person of Jesus Christ. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is ultimately an entity in which God's power resides and does His greatest work. Indeed, God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes in the unimaginable hot boil of our massive sun and in the lightning speed of a recently discovered star seen striking through the heavens at 1.5 million miles per hour. Yet in Scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. How powerful then must be the gospel, be that it would merit such a title." but how great is the salvation it could accomplish in my life if I would only embrace it by faith and give it a central place in my thoughts each day. That's what it it does for me. Andrew, thanks for getting me this book. It is so amazing. Number two, because it's about salvation. It's about salvation. The reason why we should be passionate about the gospel is because it's about salvation. The second reason why you should be passionate about the gospel is because it's about your salvation. You see, left to us, we are desperate, in desperate trouble. We are in trouble now because we are at odds with God. Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The word salvation means deliverance from great danger, rescue from ruin. What is this danger from which the gospel saves? The answer is from God himself and his wrath. Streaming hot vengeance and fiery hatred of sin is bearing down on every unbeliever. They are but a heartbeat away from eternal hell. There is much more to the gospel than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Much more than that. Hebrews 10.31 says that it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And only the power of God can rescue us from the wrath of God. If God does not rescue sinners, God will just damn us. Jonathan Edwards said in his famous sermon, all without Christ are sinners in the hands of an angry God. There's only one who can save from God, and that is God himself. Number three, because, God's, because it's God's way of salvation. That's why you could be passionate about it. This is the only way for someone to have eternal life. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty one: Since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, one thing I determined a long time ago is that I determined to know nothing except him and him crucified. And that's the only thing that I care about. Number four, because it's the power of God. We just talked about it. Paul, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, the great apostle, such a humble man, it says there, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. All right? The word power, dunamis, comes from the Greek word that comes into the English language, dynamite. The gospel is the explosive dynamite of God to salvation. This figure speech uses really two negatives to make one positive, which carries an extra punch into, into really our mind. See, Paul could have just said, I'm fired up for the gospel or I'm excited to preach it. No, he said, I am not ashamed because it is good news of salvation. There's no more powerful message in the entire world than this truth. No message has a greater life-changing and eternity-altering impact than the gospel. No message makes a deeper effect on a person's life. No message has the power to change people from the inside out than the gospel. The gospel is far more powerful than, than the power of your sin. And any other message is simply behavior modification. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea. This is why we don't have to be ashamed. That's why we could be passionate because we have the power of the third person of training living with us. And he commissioned us to be his witness. One more passage and then I'm going to wrap up. Hebrews 12, 2. Would you open there for me? Hebrews 12, chapter 2. It says here, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. See that phrase, despising the shame? And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Every sinner that rejects the gospel shames Jesus. Let me repeat that again. Every sinner that rejects the gospel shames Jesus disgraces Jesus, is embarrassed to even relate with Jesus. But Jesus despised the shame from the world in order to endure the cross that he may be the author and the perfecter of your faith. While Jesus was in heaven before he came down, he never felt what it was to suffer shame in its eternality. But he did that that you might be saved and that he may call you his brother. What is a Christian then? A Christian is someone who is not ashamed of Christ. Someone who is not ashamed of God, but one who is ashamed of himself. That is what a Christian is. Dr. Lloyd Jones said, the thing to grasp is that the apostle is saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the God's mighty working. It is God himself doing this thing, not simply telling us about it, doing it and doing it in this way through the gospel. Lastly, because the gospel is for everyone. The fifth reason why we should be passionate about the gospel is that is the gospel is for everyone. Paul here is speaking chronologically, not of greater importance. His point is that the gospel is for all people. It's for everybody. In Acts 2.21, Peter says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know how the Bible ends? The Bible ends in Revelation 22, verse 17. This is how the Bible ends. It ends with an invitation. It says this, The spirit of the bride says, Come, let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. How can one be ashamed of the gospel, which offers hope to the vilest, most desperate, as well as to the most respected person? Paul was so eager to go to Rome because people there were under the wrath of God. Souls needed to be delivered from eternal destruction. The sole condition to receive salvation is faith alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And the one who believes means, means to commit one's life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It means to trust Him solely, totally, to rely on Him immensely. Faith in Him means no longer trusting in one's work or morality. There's only one way for them to be saved, and that is through the gospel. So whether you are a Jew or a Greek, salvation is not only through the gospel. It is the only way to God. In other words, the gospel is for everyone. There's one way for a Jew to be. There's not one way for a Jew to be saved, and a different way for a Gentile. Knock that out of your head. In Matthew 7, it tells us that there's one, only one gate that leads into the kingdom of God, and it's a narrow one. It's through the gospel. So when he says that the Jew first, the ripple of the gospel come initially to the Jews because they were God chosen people, and in John 4:22 says that salvation would come through them. And Paul is picturing here the spread of the gospel like a ripple effect, like tossing a pebble into a pond. And the Jew in turn were to take this this into the Gentiles. Sadly, the Jews ported the saving message to themselves. Jonah, the prophet, was commissioned to go to Nineveh, but he ran to the opposite direction. He did not want the Gentiles to be saved. He wanted to keep the gospel to himself. He wanted to keep the gospel for the Jews only. This runaway, disobedient prophet was trying to go far away from what God wanted him to do. He did not want anyone else to have this salvation. He was a selfish, prejudiced, self-absorbed, self-consumed prophet who acted this way. So all of this we talked about, about passion and the gospel. Here's the thing. So what? So what? This is so what? The church is also acting this way like Jonah. By our action, we want to keep the gospel to ourselves. When you believe in Jesus, you will never be the same again. Have you? Are you the same? If this dramatic change has not happened in your life, then you have never received the gospel. When one comes to faith, it's like an erupting volcano. No one was more opposed to the gospel than Paul. He was hell-bent on hurting and killing Christians. But in one life-changing moment, he was captured by the power of the gospel. No one can receive the gospel that is not dramatically changed at the deepest level. The gospel is not just painting the exterior of your life, but it's a total reconstruction. You are totally rewired Totally reconstructed. And believing in Him is not just a box you check. The gospel brings the total transformation of your life from the inside out. That's what the gospel does. So if the gospel has this power, if you give the gospel to someone else, it could also change their lives. You know why I know this? Because it has changed your life. Because he has changed my life. And if we continually preach the gospel to our ch- ourselves, we will continue to be dramatically changed. That that dramatic change is to the confirmation to the image of His Son in our lives. Isn't it worth to be passionate about the gospel? Because it's the life-changing power of God. That's why it's worth it. So what? C.H. Persian. If my hearers are not converted, I have wasted my time. I have lost the exercise of my brain and heart. I feel as if I lost my hope and I lost my life. Unless I find for my Lord some of his blood bought once, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unpack all the divine mysteries in the word. Let's pray with me. Father in heaven, um, God, we just want to ask for forgiveness. And at times, God, we forget how that we are under obligation, O Lord, to preach the gospel. At times, O Lord, we are not so eager and excited about it. And God, at times that we fall so short like Peter that we don't represent you with such pride and proud and tell people that I'm a Christian, I belong to Jesus, Jesus saved me, he's my best friend, he's the best of all, he's perfect in everything. Nothing to be ashamed of. So Father, I pray, Lord, that these three statements from the Apostle Paul will change our lives. I pray, Lord, that we'll be passionate about the gospel that changed our lives, and the gospel, Lord, that saved our lives from eternal death. God, it's so easy to be passionate about so many other things. Like sports and other things. But Lord, I pray, Lord, that a life change will happen today. That you will change our life. And to be passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the power of God unto salvation. For those who believe in Jesus' name. Amen.